It's a real honor to be here preaching at the story, continuing our summer series, Another in the Fire, where we've told stories of God doing the impossible. Today, we'll be reading about the prophet Elijah, who plays one of the parts in one of the biggest showdowns in the entire Bible. But before we jump in this morning, there's one thing I have to talk about, and that is our upcoming Student Lake Retreat. As I said, I'm the student coordinator here, and we are so excited about this event. This is the first ever lake retreat we've ever done, first ever overnight event, first ever student weekend event, and it is gonna be a jam. I am so excited. I was meeting with our speaker and our band this past Thursday, and we just talked about the theme of the weekend, the theme of being awakened to God's love and awakened to God's call upon our lives. And it just brought me almost to tears just thinking about what God could do with these students. But since it's a lake retreat, we also talked about all the fun we're going to have. On the water, playing capture the flag, football, all those great things. And one of the games I love to play with our students, and I thought about playing with you guys today, is this or that. The way the game works is you move all the chairs to the side and you put a big piece of tape in the middle of the room. You have all the students come to the middle, and then you present them with two options, each side of the room representing one option, and they're forced to pick one instantly and run to that side of the room. I really wanted to make you guys play this morning, but I thought I'd give you all a pass. But I will give you a few examples so you can understand how this game works. So the first matchup would be pizza versus hamburgers. So everyone would come to the center, and you'd have three seconds to pick pizza or hamburgers. And I'm a student coordinator, so I eat a lot of pizza, even though it probably doesn't look like it. Um, and my wife's Italian, so we love pizza. But I have to be honest, I love hamburgers. And it's July 4th, so I'm going team hamburgers on this one. The next one would be Marvel or Star Wars. Now this one gets really heated, especially with the young people today. They love Marvel. But for me and my household, we are Star Wars people. Um, we've watched the movies, the animated series, and I'm even reading the books now. So that's how big of a Star Wars geek I am. But as you can see, this can make enemies in this game pretty quickly. Like if you tell a Marvel fan that you think Ant-Man is dumb or that you think Tobey Maguire is a better Spider-Man than Tom Holland, they will come at you. I promise. It's happened to me. But what if we add more choices to this equation? Will it make it more difficult? Let's say we're going on a vacation. Would you rather go to the beach the mountains or the lake. Ooh, that's tougher, right? But what if we add more options? Beach, mountains, lake, European trip, or a road trip across America? As you can see, the more options we add, the tougher it gets to make a decision. But the whole point of this game is you have to make one. You can't stand in the middle and wait. You're forced to make an instant decision as quick as possible. And it is becoming increasingly difficult for people to make decisions today because we're presented with so many options, especially for our young people, especially for our students. Now, I know sometimes variety is good. Like, I love enjoying all seven flavors of Mountain Dew. Like, I like all of them. Baja Blast, the normal, the one with pure cane sugar, they're all great. But when it comes to big choices, choices about our personality, our identity, our purpose, more choices can be paralyzing. We're so scared of making the wrong one, we're so scared of committing to the wrong team or idea that instead of making a decision, we sit there and do nothing. 
We're scared of making the wrong choice, so we just sit there. This is something I struggle with all the time. And today's Bible story from almost 3,000 years ago tackles this exact same theme. Israel was presented with many different gods to worship. And Elijah the prophet came to them and said, you have to choose. This morning, we will look at Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal and discover three mistakes that both we and Israel make that hold us back from going all in on God. But like any good fight, like any good showdown or any good series, to fully understand the significance of the fight, we first must understand our fighters. So on one side, in one corner, we have Elijah. Elijah's the good guy. He's the prophet of God, and he is a wonderful miracle worker. Elijah did so many awesome miracles in the Bible that when Jesus came 800 years later, some people thought Jesus was Elijah who had been resurrected from the dead. Now, this is obviously not the case, but it speaks to how powerful and how awesome Elijah truly was. In the other corner, we have the bad guy, and that is the prophet or Baal and the prophets of Baal. Baal is the Canaanite god of storms and fertility, which is quite a combination if you ask me. He was one of the many gods of this time, and he was often depicted as a warrior holding lightning bolts, floating on the clouds, shooting them down from the sky. Now, Baal, like many gods of this time, was very flexible, meaning people would take part of God's story and part of Baal's story and mix them together to make something new. This idea is called syncretism, and it is likely what Israel is dealing with in this moment. Syncretism is the combination of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought into one. And syncretism is incompatible with faith in one God. And Israel knew this. They were a monotheistic people, which meant their whole identity was built around belief in one God. This is such an important part of Israel's identity that God takes the first two commandments out of the 10 to talk about this. God says in Exodus 23 through five, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. I, you shall not bow down and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So as you can see, God is clearly not down with us worshiping other gods. And that was the role of Elijah the prophet, to come and tell the people, hey, what you're doing is not gonna cut it. But the problem with this, the problem of challenging syncretism and saying that all gods aren't equal, and you just can't pick anyone to worship, that makes you an enemy of the state. And that put a target on Elijah's back. This is where we meet the last character of today's story, and his name is King Ahab. King Ahab, like the rest of these characters, can all be found in 1 Kings chapter 18. And this book is called 1 Kings because Israel was ruled by kings. That's why. Um, and Ahab was not one of Israel's best kings. In fact, Ahab was one of Israel's worst kings, like all-time worst. And he did three things that a king of Israel should never, ever do. One, he married a foreign queen named Jezebel, who ended up being a piece of work. Secondly, he took away all of the altars to God and replaced them with altars to Baal. That is definitely another strike. And third, and finally, him and his wife 
took on a tag team campaign to wipe out all of the prophets of Yahweh and Israel. Yeah, those are three major strikes. And this is the whole reason King Ahab sets up the showdown on Mount Carmel that we are about to discuss. King Ahab is kind of like the promoter of this fight, right? So he summons Elijah, he summons the prophets of Baal, and he summons all of Israel to come onto Mount Carmel to watch this showdown. Who will prevail, God or Baal? As everyone assembled on Mount Carmel, Elijah took the chance to really set up the challenge and to talk to Israel. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, to read what happens. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. So before we get to this awesome challenge where we will see which God answers by fire, we first have to look at what Elijah says to the nation of Israel. This conversation between Elijah and the people is key in understanding the first of three ways we can get off track today. And that is, we waver between the Lord and lesser gods. We waver between the Lord and lesser gods. Verse 21 describes the situation perfectly. Let's focus on Elijah's question. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is him, God, follow him. But the people don't respond. Have you heard the phrase that sometimes silence speaks louder than words? This is definitely one of those times. The Israelite silence here speaks volumes. They are caught in the middle of worshiping two gods at once, and they just got called out. Elijah's question about wavering between two opinions can actually be translated to hobbling at the crossroads. So imagine Israel is at the crossroads between God and Baal. Instead of picking one, they're just limping in between the two, doing neither effectively. Anytime we divide our attention between two or more things, we get into trouble. The problem is, Dividing our attention between two or more things and trying to do many things at once is something we do all the time. And we call it multitasking. And I am the worst at it, I promise. If you catch me on a Thursday night, you will see me sitting on my couch with the Astros game on TV, on mute, of course, while my laptop open, playing a game with my friends, while also watching YouTube on my phone. This is an actual picture of me doing that this Thursday while also writing my sermon. So that was extra multitasking. It's funny because in the moment, I think I'm doing all three things at the same time. But ask my wife, I am definitely not. And if I try to mix a fourth task into that list, which is holding a conversation with my wife, that's when she becomes Elijah and calls me out on my divided attention. 
that's not going to cut it. While multitasking seems like a great way to get multiple things done at once, research shows this isn't the case. We're not as good at it as we think. Multitasking actually reduces our productivity by as much as 40%. And switching tasks in our brain not only slows us down, but it also creates anxiety within us. Research proves the best way to approach a problem is by single tasking, doing one thing at a time. And this same principle can be applied to our faith. If we try to operate in two different worldviews or two different faiths or serve two different masters, we get into trouble. And Jesus agrees. He picks up on this exact same theme in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus teaches that when it comes to our ultimate purpose, when it comes to our why, we cannot be divided. We all know this from personal experience. Many of us have started new relationships or new businesses or new endeavors. And unless you are all in, unless you are fully committed, you're not gonna get it done. Even so, Many of us still try to do this today. We try to multitask our way through faith, being half in and half out. There are many ways our world does this today. One group will take the teachings of Jesus from the Bible, the stuff like loving your neighbor, freeing the captives, holding the sick, healing the sick. They'll take that stuff, but they'll reject the stuff about Jesus being our God. And they'll take the parts of the Bible they like and mix it with other things other gods, other political movements, maybe nationalism, maybe just belief in humanity, or even the occult. This is straight up modern day syncretism. And I promise it's on a rise in our country and with our young people. In Strange Rights, author Tara Isabel Burton investigates America's willingness to combine different religious beliefs into something new. When talking about syncretism and the acceptance of new age beliefs, such as reincarnation, psychics, and spiritual energies, she says that 60% of the religiously unaffiliated believe in at least one of these phenomenons. That's reincarnation, psychics, energies. But what's most striking about the poll is that so did an almost identical percentage of Christians. In other words, the personal beliefs and practices of self-identifying Christians are themselves increasingly varied. For many of us, it's easy to point a finger at the person we know who wears cross necklaces, but also visits psychics and use crystals for healing. But our secular friends aren't the only ones living out two different faiths. According to this research, the average Christian is as well. Syncretism is far more common than we think and has even crept its way into the American church. Now, maybe you have never visited a psychic and maybe you don't read the stars, but if we are honest this morning, none of us are pure in our devotion to God. All of us rely on lesser gods and for that we need to repent. I'll make it real simple for you this morning. If you rely on anything anything more than God, that's an issue. The good news for us 
is that God doesn't give up on us when we turn our backs to him. He just asks us to recalibrate our focus. And this leads us to the second way we get tripped up in our faith today. And that is we seek the attention of a God that will not answer. So back to the story with the altars and the fire, Elijah gives the prophets a bail, first dibs on lighting their altar. So the prophets start praying, they start asking their God to shoot down lightning and light up the altar, but nothing happens. And this is when the story gets kind of funny. And to be honest, this is in the Bible, I'm not making it up, but Elijah gets a little confident and he starts saying, hey, where's your God Baal at? Is he maybe on vacation? Is he busy? Maybe he's using the bathroom. Yes, Elijah says, maybe your God is using the bathroom and that's not why he's showing up. Now the 450 prophets of Baal, they don't like this poking and prodding. So they start getting a little antsy because they want Baal to show up. So all 450 of them get up and start fanatically dancing around the altar. Can you imagine the 450 prophets dancing? And when that doesn't work, it gets dark. They start getting knives and cutting themselves and pouring their blood out on the altar, hoping Baal will show up. And spoiler alert, Baal does not show up to the showdown. But the story proves what links people will go to getting the attention of a God who's not even real. How many of us today are doing crazy things to get the attention of a God who will never show up? If your God is money, you will work 60 to 80 hours a week, giving up your health, friends, and family just to chase that next paycheck. And once you get it, you'll just want the next one. If your God is fame or notoriety, you'll spend hours on social media hoping to get noticed by someone you don't even know while you are sacrificing the people who actually love and care about you. If your God is love or your God is romance, you will get ready and go to the bars or the club every weekend, hoping to find that guy or that girl to make you complete. The issue with all of these situations is you are seeking the attention of a false God who will never show up. And if he does, he will never fully satisfy you. This lifestyle is a rat race and it leads to burnout and apathy. And if I'm being honest this morning, this is where I see so much of my generation, my friends, my fellow students that I work with here at the story. It's not due to a lack of effort. They are some of the most hardworking, creative and devoted people I have ever met, but they lack purpose and they lack passion because they're looking for it in all of the wrong places. Their energies are misdirected and they're putting everything they have into something that will never get them, give them what they're seeking for. They will always be longing for something greater because earthly things will never give us the hope, love, and peace that we truly seek. In this pursuit of a lesser God, what we're really doing is putting me at the center of the universe. We're creating, we're curating a faith that fits us perfectly. It's all about what I desire and what I think is right. And this is syncretism's logical conclusion, a convoluted man-made religion that evolves around you. And as long as you worship this, as long as you worship yourself, you're never gonna find the purpose you seek. Only the Lord our God can provide that. 
Let's pick up in verse 36 to see how our Lord responds to this situation. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you are Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water and the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The final showdown ends in a bang and Israel immediately realizes their mistake. The same one we make today. And that is, we forget we serve a God who does the impossible. In the miracle of fire coming down from heaven, Israel is reminded of this. We serve a God who is in the business of doing the impossible. And God has always been in the business of doing the impossible for Israel. Just think back about their story. They were slaves in Egypt and God freed them from Moses, a shepherd in the wilderness. And then once they were freed, they were being chased by an army and they were stuck with an army at their back and a sea in front of them. And God used a staff to part the sea, to lead them into safety. And then when God took the people of Israel to the promised land, they were in a land that was occupied by someone else. So what did God do? God used their voice and trumpets to bring down walls of massive cities to bring them to their land. And once again, in this story, when Israel had turned their back to God again, what does God do? God comes down with fire to rescue and save them and bring them back into his fold. The Lord is our God and he does the impossible, friends. And we need to be reminded of that every single day. We need an Elijah who will call us out on our wavering and say, did you forget the God you serve? We serve the only true God and the only God who can respond by fire. And if you compare Elijah to the prophets of Baal, look how Elijah does it. He doesn't dance. He doesn't perform. He simply believed and asked God to show up, and he did. Faith in our God does not require special dances or secret knowledge. All it requires is trust and obedience. And with that, God can take one man and defeat an army. As a kid, this was always one of my favorite stories in the Bible, to be honest. And it might just be because I was a middle school boy and I loved fire and I loved making fires. So the idea of God coming down with fire sounded pretty cool. But as a kid, I was always wondering, like, when am I gonna see God's fire? When is God gonna rain down with fire today? And there's two problems with this thought process. One is it makes God just a miracle performer or a magician and that's not God's role. And secondly, in desiring the fire, we overlook the real miracle of this story. The real miracle here isn't the fire, y'all. The real miracle is God's presence coming down to earth and turning the rebellious heart back to him. That miracle is God's presence. 
Christian writer and theologian Frederick Buechner has this to say about miracles and presence, and I think it makes this point perfectly. He says, for what we need to know, of course, is not just that God exists, not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars, there's a cosmic intelligence of some kind that keeps the whole show going, but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-to-day lives. It is not objective proof of God's existence that we want, but the experience of God's presence. That's the miracle that we are really after. And that is also, I think, the miracle that we really get. The miracle we all need and the miracle we all receive is God's presence. That's what saves us. Almost 3,000 years ago, God's presence came down through fire on Mount Carmel. 800 years later, God showed up to Israel once again with the same mission of rescuing the lost and returning them to him. That fire, that fire was Jesus Christ. John 1 says Jesus was the light of the world, a fire descending into darkness, and the darkness could not overcome him. Y'all, we still serve the God of fire today, and the darkness can still not overcome him. Through God, the impossible becomes possible. And as we move today through an increasingly synchronistic world where we we are encouraged to dabble in whatever makes us feel good or whatever makes us feel right, we need to be reminded that more options don't make faith easier. When it comes to fast food chains or chip brands, sure, variety is great, but it comes back to the game we played up top, this or that. In some situations, you have to go all in or all out, pick one side or the other. And faith is one of those times. Faith can't be done from the middle. The issue is, I love being in the middle. I love comfort. I love refusing to commit. I always have fear of missing out. But the truth is, lukewarm faith is useless. Faith in the God of the impossible requires all of us. So Eliza's challenge to Israel, Eliza's challenge to us, Eliza's challenge to me this morning is very simple. It's pick a side. Maybe it's time today that you go all in on God. And maybe you've been a Christian for 60 years. Maybe you've been here at the story for its entire existence. Or maybe you became a Christian a week ago. The question is the same for all of us. Even if you're a Christian, what does it look like for you to go all in today? How can you pick a side and be on God's side this afternoon? And just look at Elijah for proof. It doesn't matter the odds. When we put our trust in a God who does the impossible, that's when miracles happen. Friends, God is still in the business of doing the impossible today. The question is, Will you join him and see what he can do? Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the story of Elijah that reminds us that even when things seem impossible, even when it seems like the odds are too great, Lord, you are good and you are our God. I pray today that we would put our faith and trust wholly in you, that you would burn away all distractions, 
Burn away everything holding us back and let us go fully onto your side, Lord. I pray for confidence. I pray for your Holy Spirit's guidance. And I pray, Lord, that today we would make a decision to pick your side. In Jesus' perfect and holy name, amen.